Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. One of the craziest days of cycling I've watched maybe since the Planche de Belfi Stage 20 ITT last year and compounded with that excitement. My internet just went down at two in the morning, so we've had a one-hour delay. That's why the pod might be getting to your ears a little bit late. It's my fault. Don't blame Benji. Just come at me on Twitter. Before we get into Paranese Stage 8 recap and Terreno Adriatico Stage 5 recap, I want to give a big shout-out to our show partner, LaCole. They make this podcast possible for Benji to fit it in around all the other things he's doing. Mandalorian stuff. I don't know if he runs a blog about that or not. Maybe he should. LaCole produced performance cycling apparel. You can check them out at www.lecol.cc and they kid out Drops LaCole, partnered by Tempur, Continental Cycling Team, who you'll have seen at the Healthy Aging Tour this week. Looking, I'd say, not even arguable. It's inarguable that they had the best kit in that race compared to all the other kits that light blue or if it's turquoise i'm not quite sure i'm not uh, a specialist in that regard we also have a ko-fi link now down below some people have been demanding that we put it in there for people that want to support the podcast a little bit differently it also helps with the photo licensing which we hadn't budgeted for but i think we decided it adds a lot of value to the podcast but the easiest way you can support the podcast is word of mouth recommendations liking it down below or disagreeing and arguing with us in the youtube comments but enough of that paranese stage eight will do first this is a going to be a crazy recap 90 kilometer stage three category well three climbs really four k's at three percent four percent code de deranus not a particularly terrifying climb but technical descents Roglic crashed at 20Ks into the stage. I saw on race radio, and but there was no live images at that stage. We saw photos of teammates pacing him back on. A break struggled to form after 30Ks of riding, and then eventually there was one with Ruch, De Klerk, Bistram, Turns, and Co. They were joined by other riders later. Jumbo, Visma, and Bora were pacing them at 36 seconds. All was well. Roglic's 52-second lead on GC looked fine over Sharkman, but then it all turn to shit with 25Ks to go, Benji. What was the first signs of distress for Roglic? Yes, we had on the screen suddenly an image of Roglic being 30 meters behind the peloton group, riding at the head of a second group with Demar behind him and a few teammates of Demar. So something happened in this end. Now, it's been a few minutes since the race ended, so we've got a rough idea of what happened, which is good. We can get into detail now. So your internet falling out gave us a bit more knowledge about what happened. So I guess it's a, a low-key advantage indeed. And in that descent, we had Jumbo that was relatively at the front of the peloton, Roglic as well in that group. And apparently, according to Kreisweg, who said it after the stage ended, and also according to La Flamme Rouge, who investigated it intelligently on Twitter, definitely check out their threads and their Twitter, shout out for them there. Well, he crashed in the last corner of the descent with a good 30 kilometers to go. And what's interesting there is that it looked like perhaps he was in the wheels of the Umbo Riders because the image we saw was him pacing alone in a second group to the peloton group. A peloton entirely stretched out because somebody was pacing at the front of the race. We didn't know who yet. And in that second group, he was alone. No teammates. Three Umbo teammates in the peloton ahead of him. We see Bennett slowly but surely looking around in the first group and moving back. It takes a good 2-3 minutes for the Yambo people ahead to realize what's going on and help Roglic. That's a lot of time you lose when it comes to pacing. Luckily for Roglic, Demar was there with a few teammates. Those teammates did help out. I'm not sure whether they wanted to help out Roglic or Demar. I think you thought they wanted to help Demar. No, Roglic, right? 
Well, I thought Damar was pretty much out of the stage and they were just offering a cursory bit of help to Rollich because the gap was only 30 metres. It was barely anything. It looked like a regulation. It's the same sort of gap when they go to get a bid on Benji and then come back or just talk to the team car. It really wasn't far. We're talking three to four seconds, that gap. And I think FDJ were just like, oh, well, we'll pace him back on. But then the group in front started speeding up a lot. And I don't know what was happening with race radio. I don't know whether there was whether Yumbo Visma were complacent in not dropping riders out. I think it's more likely that they didn't know what was happening. Although, to be honest, that's not really an excuse because normally you have you watch Ineos and in, and Yumbo Visma last year. You should have your last domestique on the back wheel of Roglic. Um, so that they know if they've dropped back. So they're really you don't shouldn't need race radio to know that he's in the second group. So I don't know what happened there. But then he wasn't able to close that gap, Benji, and that Demar FTJ Roglic group kept thinning out. And who did you see pacing on the front on the peloton? We saw that Boro was moving up, but Ahamsgro was setting a few riders up there. Shockman obviously being very close on GC. I think, I don't know what the gap was, but 52. close enough to definitely have interest in opening up the gap. Okay, 52 seconds on Roglic. So interesting to open up that gap to Roglic more. He had, I think, three or four teammates, but the likes of a Nils Spolitz, so a massive engine there. We also saw that Astana at a certain point moved in because Bora was like, okay, I'm closing GC. Flazov and Izaguero are pretty close as well. So why don't you ride? And... Astana decided to help out then, so those two teams were the main engines behind the people that were trying to get the peloton as far away from they Roglic dropped as possible. Out of the break, Astana, who was suffering? Yep, yeah, I think uh, like multiple riders, even right, two riders. Yeah. The thing about this is that well, we'll go into the details of whether. We like that they pace away from a rider who crashed or not after the stage. We'll talk about the stage first, and then we'll go into our opinions on it and our takes on it. I think a lot of people have a lot of opinions for it, but yeah, we'll take that afterwards. First, the stage. So the Roglic group behind, he had his teammates there. One by one, those teammates went off the front of that group, and eventually he just ended up alone because they dropped a lot of people in the process, but they weren't getting too much closer because... Those are individual riders, like Bennett and well, so Niels forth. Against against Niels Pollard against on a false flat downhill. Yeah, that's that's just it's just impossible to do that. And he obviously got a bit of help by some other people. I think Nasser Buhani was helping him out at a certain point. Tim the cleric was helping him out at a certain point, but that's not going to get him too much further because those people are coming from the front. They're not exactly helping a teammate, so they're not going to go full. Tim the cleric almost wrote together with Roglic and Ravine, that gave me a heart attack, basically. Like, the Leclerc was taking a corner very wide, Roglic followed his wheel because he was helping him out a bit, and they almost both rode straight into <laughs> into a section there. So I'm glad that didn't happen. I'm glad they were able to break on time. I think Roglic lost the Leclerc at that point as well because the Leclerc was braking much harder and was next to the road because of that. So Roglic, yeah... It was kind of done the moment that Roglic was alone and didn't have his teammates because the gap started going up from 20 to like 34 seconds in a matter of a minute. And then afterwards, it, it was slowly but surely moving up. And actually, I'm saying slowly but surely, but it was moving up quite rapidly at the time. So yeah, that's not, not good for Roglic. GC over and basically in the situation because of a crash that happened on the last descent, which is very unfortunate to lose Paris-Nice like that. But in the front group, Plenty of people who are still willing to win the stage, of course. We've got Laporte, who is a sprinter. We've got a Magnus called Nilsson with a sprinter. We've got Astana, who still perhaps wants to put some some difficulty into Shockman because Shockman at this moment is virtual GC leader. Astana is just behind that with, with Vlasov and Izagire. So if they could try and do something, those two riders against Shockman, it could play out. But yeah, what did Astana do to try and smashing to Sharkman a tiny bit there. Well, once Bora had pulled that gap out with Coffidis' help, pacing for Laporte, 
to a solid gap of about 120. You know, Astana Bora, they're all working together fine. They're like, let's knock Roglic off and then we can start to fight amongst ourselves. And this is all happening in the last 18 kilometers, which is insane. And they knew Roglic was done on GC once it hit about 130 and he looked, he was gassed and no one was there to help him. So at that point, Astana started launching one-twos, first with Yoni Zagire trying to follow a move of, oh, I feel like it was a stage win, hopeful, maybe like a Dylan Turns, Benji, someone like that. Zagire tried to follow him, and then it was uh, Vlasov. Then once Shakman had brought back Izagire, countering over the top. But Shakman was, he was isolated at this point in the last eight kilometers or so, because his teammate had just his teams had just ridden full to try and increase that gap to Roglic, and Sharkman was so strong defending that position. He was in the virtual yellow jersey at that point by a long way, by over a minute in the last ten k's, and he closed down Izagirde Vlasov, no worries. And then Astana were pretty much done; they weren't able to roll one twos against him. And then it's like a it's a pretty quick run into the finish, really twisty. And I think Astana's plans got ruined by all the stage hopefuls, Benji. So, yeah, who were the, the guys coming to the front of the group for the final sprint, which was like a twisty, fast run-in with a corner in the last 200 metres, so positioning was crucial. But, yeah, a few notable names up there. Yeah, Laporte and Court were the names we mentioned earlier that were the sprinters in the group, but a lot of others were also interested in trying something Meta came to the front for a tiny bit, yeah. but it was more turns that they were trying to set up for that final section. You just had Lampard in there. He was also trying to get a bit of a proper position because he's done decent sprints in the past. He hasn't properly won one at all or near that, but he can top five a sprint like that. And in a situation like this after a stage like today, everything's possible. So everybody worming his way to the front. But I feel like this final kilometer was really sketchy. I think that a lot yeah. of people that perhaps didn't know what the final kilometer looked like messed up the final kilometer because I swear at least one rider that was in that group certainly could have potentially won this race if he knew the parkour better. We had Magnus Court Nielsen going into the last 500 meters in first position. So he knows he must I need to be in this to. position to be in a good position to try and win the stage. Yeah, exactly. Laporte being in the wheel of Magnus Court Nielsen Dylan Turns being, I think, just in the wheel there as well, or swinging around that wheel somewhere. Magnus Court Nielsen taking every corner in first. He must know what is coming. And they went into the last corner. Laporte in second wheel. You would say Laporte, perfect position because he's in second wheel. But the finish line is in 30 meters. And yeah. I think Laporte was surprised. He tried to get past Magnus Court Nielsen. But yeah... It won't work. There's just not enough time to do so. Magnus Court Nielsen takes the final stage of Paris-Nice. I think just on parkour knowledge alone on the 500 meters, he was the strongest. And Laporte kind of messed up there, I think, because I swear Laporte could have won if he knew the parkour better. Once again, just like on stage six, Benji, Laporte not able to come out of the wheel when you think he would have been able to. But the top 10 on this stage, Magnus Court first, for EF Education Nippo, he loves a reduced bunch, messy stage sprint like in the Vuelta last year. Laporte second, Latour third, Dylan turns fourth, Bargui fifth, Benji, the sprinter. Dylan Van Baal sixth, <laughs> Yoni Zagira seventh, Jorgensen eighth, Lampard ninth, Schachmann tenth, in a group of about 21 riders, including Gino Maida. GC turned absolutely on its head. Shuckman wins Paris-Nice the second year in a row, 19 seconds ahead of Vlasov and 23 seconds ahead of Yoni Zagire, two Astana Premier Tech riders on the podium on GC. Lucas Hamilton fourth, 40 back, as well as Tish Benut there as well in fifth. Then Guillaume Martin, Haig, seventh. Jorgensen, Patapantra and Gino Maida make up the top 10. Roglic, ends up on GC coming 15th, two minutes and 16 behind Maximilian Schachmann. So I said it in the preview, my video preview, don't count out this final Paris stage. Crazy shit can happen. Marc Soler winning Paris in 2018 ahead of Simon Yates by four seconds. 
I tongue in cheek in my video that I put up this morning said, oh, 52 second gap. Where have we seen that before going into the last stage? But <laughs> I never saw this coming, Benji. Because on strength, on strength, Astana and Bora couldn't have done anything to Roglic, even if he had no teammates. Like you saw the way Schuckman was able to cover moves. There's no Roglic would have been able to do that as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts on Roglic? And then we're going to get into the inevitable debate in a second. This is a lot about Roglic that he first crashes. He apparently dislocated his shoulder in the first Jeez. crash, had to put that back and stepped on his bike and kept riding, which is insane. The source for that dislocation of the shoulder is cycling news. So take that with a grain of salt. They're usually pretty clickbaity. So sorry about that if it's wrong. But I've got the feeling that if you get on your bike with your wound on the left side, a wound on the right side, you crash another time in the last uh, corner of that descent. You get back on your bike, you start smashing it, you finish the stage. And what you do is you step off your bike, you go to Sharkman, you say congratulations, fist bump, and you continue your day. That is Crazy. a fucking class act by Droglic because on paper, these other teams fuck them over. Let's be real. We're going to go into whether that's a good or a bad <laughs> thing in a second. But on paper, they fucked him over and he, ga- he came to them and he said, congratulations, dude. I think that I think that is definitely Klaus. And he went up in my likable ranking because of it today, genuinely. But um, let's yeah. talk about the elephant in the room. Should okay, Bora and Astana have paced? <laughs> what is your take first? Well, first of all, I think there's a defense for them that they're acting on incomplete information. If the Yumbo Visma domestiques don't exactly know what's happened, Benji, then how are they supposed to know at the front of the race? How are they supposed to know if Roglic was just a a part of a split? Because FDJ were part of that split. So maybe when the pace went up, he was just on the wrong side of a split. And, oh, yeah, it might have been affected by the crash. 70 k's 60 k's earlier but come on you you're still allowed to pace anyone would say at that point so obviously they've got incomplete information there b a race is a race we said roglic was entitled to go for the stage win yesterday of course and um he crashed twice today it wasn't bora hansgrohe or astana's fault to my knowledge that he crashed or that they caused him to crash I maintain this consistently since Movistar pacing in Vuelta 2019, a race the race, crashing or not crashing is part of that race. Tony Martin and Rogler were the only guys to crash earlier in the race. Tony Martin not being there made a massive difference, Benji, as well. So, yeah, I don't, I think Astana and Bora did 100% the right thing. Just like Roglic has an obligation to his sponsors yesterday, Astana and Bora have an obligation to their sponsors to ride full and try and go for the win on the road. Uh, Do you have any different take? I've got a bunch of different takes. So (laughs) I want to call out a few people, not directly, but like a few types of people. First of all, the types of people that only complain in a situation like this, if their favorite rider of team is the rider that is behind because of a crash or a puncture and the other team start to pace. The person that complains then but not when it's a competitor. I want to call you out for hypocrisy there. That's a lot of people. I promise you. Then, secondly, the people who compare yesterday to today. So, you, Lantern. <laughs> I'm going to call you out there. <laughs> In the situation that yesterday is a racing situation where a rider is strong enough to win a race. So, he has the ability to win the race and is allowed to win the race if he wants to. And there's been a lot of shit on social media about it. But... I still stand by the point that Roglic is doing his job by winning that race. Today, Shockman is also doing that, but the different situation is that Mater didn't fall twice yesterday. <laughs> I think there's a moral difference there. But despite all that, I believe that my take on this is that let's say that a GC competitor crashes in a 200 kilometer flat stage after uh, a good 80 kilometers, still 120 kilometers of flat stage left, and your competitor crashes in the yellow jersey. I'd be like, 
yeah, we'll wait because it's a stupid stage to start pacing now. And it's also kind of a dick move to do it. Now, in a race where the situation is where we either have a race that is ongoing, like today, or a race that is about to explode, you have the complete allowance to, to keep racing. It's just, it's a race. It's a bike race. They can do whatever they want because at that point, you're in a situation where the race is ongoing and they shouldn't stop racing because someone else crashed. I, I don't believe that's a valid take. This is because of all the traditional unwritten rules that was uh, that were named in the past. Those were unwritten rules are done for. Um, we had you just a said huge debacle about it in the Contador versus 200k transition stage. You shouldn't pace 80k's in. No, I wouldn't stay. I wouldn't pace. There is a difference okay. there. If someone else would pace, I would not complain. But I'd find it pretty stupid to start pacing on a one or two anti-kilometer flat part against the competitor that crashed. That's just my personal opinion on that. But I think the clear difference is here. In any racing situation that influences the race and such, and if you, for example, are planning to attack or whatever, or even if you weren't planning to attack, if it's in a situation that could change the race significantly, you're allowed to do it. The unwritten rules have passed for years now. And if you look at all the teams, at least somebody on those teams did it before. Last year, Roglic kept on pacing when Port had a puncture on Glier. Sure, he had to pace to stay with Pogacar and such, but those guys also paced. So they were all guilty somewhat to Richie Port, who was behind. So, yeah, there's a lot of situations where this has all happened to freaking everybody in the entire peloton. Pavare lost the Vuelta because someone else started pacing when he had a crash or puncture a few years ago. I think the Purito days. And then they were complaining when Vuelta was doing it to Roglic in the Vuelta of 2019. Like, yeah, it's, it's unfair to Vuelta in that situation, for example. No one paced when Roglic crashed, apparently, at the start of the stage. So like Benji said, yep. at the start of the stage, Jumbo Visma apparently went to the front of the peloton blocked and no one paced because, you know, Sharkman and co. weren't really interested at that point. But um, Sharkman and Astana might have been trying something in the last 20Ks. Hey, it's their last 20Ks of the Paris-Nice trying to put Roglic under pressure. And his team might crumble and his team weren't able to help him today really in the after the second crash now he sounded pretty banged up after that first crash benji i'm yeah. gonna go out on a limb and say that was a contributive contributing factor to him crashing the second time uh, the reason i brought up yesterday was because the logic i mean i didn't even know why people were criticizing it because i'm not i didn't grow up with cycling so the unwritten rules i've never I've never even heard them, let alone read them, because you can't read them because they don't exist on paper. <laughs> um, but I didn't even know why there was a problem yesterday because I was like, it's a race. You're allowed to race whatever way you want as long as you're not endangering people. So yesterday's a race. Today's a race. Congrats to Sharkman. He stayed upright for the entirety of Paris-Nice. That's part of stage racing. CC, Richie Port, Geraint Thomas, Tay Gagenhart. And listen, I also think Ineos get better tyres. Why did Gagenhart's front wheel wash out, Benji? What if other teams are using better tyres? No, like, but this is where equipment choices yeah, matter apparently for a TT. But then if anyone crashes because they're running maybe really quick tyres or tyres that don't have good grip or whatever, well, then you've got to wait for them. Or what if their handling's not so good? And, I mean, Sharkman crashed last year, Benji. <laughs> and Igita didn't wait for him in the last three kilometers, I don't think. So um, I think the, the easiest and fairest solution is to everyone just race full. And then it'll, that'll be the most just situation rather than, oh, well, he'll pay me back. And then now they don't like them. And then, no, no, no. Yeah. It never evens out in the wash like that. Not th not in my view. Um, but yeah, anything else you've seen? You said exactly. you had a few rants, Benji. Yeah, another rant towards that. Like an extra point I want to I wanna bring up is the people that came up today and in the race were like, oh, they're all pacing against him. The entire peloton is pacing against Roglic because yesterday he was nah. so, so greedy and took the victory from, from Mater. That, that's bullshit. Come on. It's, yesterday it's racing. Nothing. This is a tactic. 
race tactic exists and yesterday indeed changed nothing. I think the people that had that feeling or have that thought process should buy some kind of guide cycling tactics for dummies or something because I really don't get it. Fabio Aru, why is he pacing in the middle of the Bora train for Quebec Assos? He's training for the Tour de France, mate. That's clear. Like, <laughs> he's, he's obviously leader. <laughs> we just don't know. <laughs> but sorry, go on. Yeah, I think the comparison that we made yesterday, we said a lot about it already on social media. It's been pure mayhem. Um, but I think that another example is, let's say Roglic yesterday doesn't take the stage and he sits in the wheel of Mater, then Shockman most likely wins the stage because it was basically just behind Mater anyway. So yeah, that situation wouldn't really happen. But then Mater would say like, yeah, this is a gift by Roglic. So perhaps he might pay it back in the future. But let's say Roglic just stays with Shockman and doesn't make that move to Mater. Then Mater will never know that it was a gift. Roglic will never get it paid back. And the people that are complaining that he made that final move won't have thought wouldn't about that because, well, yeah, they wouldn't it's not him. a gift because Mater won the race fairly. It's like it's Godou like you... last year to Vuelta. Yeah. The reason yeah. Godou won that stage on Farapona was because Roglic opened up the gap or let the gap open up because he didn't care about the stage. He could have easily won that stage. We know it. We know he would have won that stage if he tried. He probably but should have, to be honest. he didn't. He didn't go for it. And Godou, yeah, he should have done it. Uh, that's our opinion. But and Godou <laughs> took that victory. I haven't heard anybody say that Godou Gaudir did that victory ever. And Godou never paid that back and will never pay that back to Roglic. Apparently, Roglic's last few stage races, Paris crashes twice, comes out of the top 10 on GC after absolutely, like the most dominant seven days before in a stage race, different level from the other guys, crashes out of GC. Vuelta nearly cracks on the last stage, only needs, who was pacing him? Movistar, Movistar were pacing him back to Carapaz to save his welter. <laughs> Tour de France, we know what happened on Planche de Belfi. Dauphiné, uh, he crashed out of Dauphiné. And what was the stage before that? Anyway, I can't remember. But it's not been, it's been really bad luck for him, Benji. Um, do you think there's a, am I making it up that his crashing seems more frequent than others? Are you ready to put him in the port? thomas category or do you think it's just bad luck at this point i think we've got a lot of situations where we notice that a certain amount of riders crash more than others and it's difficult to say whether it's because they're more important that we see them more or there's more attention to them when they crash because i don't know the difference there and we never see the fucking crashes yeah we, we don't know who else crashed like godu crash today we haven't heard about it uh, perhaps three times during the entire oh, really? day, I've heard about it. So, Godou crashed roughly at the same moment that Roglic crashed at the start of the stage. He DNF'd. He's not in the race after the stage. Well, obviously, because Paris Nice is over. <laughs> but, um, yeah. yeah. Nobody talks about that because Roglic is the higher person. So, we don't know whether the other these other people also crash just as much. And then it's difficult to judge whether, whether it's... Him being not a good guy at steering, which I doubt because he seems to be a pretty uh, a pretty nifty rider on the bike. No, I disagree. I disagree, Benji, strongly. Well, just I think like handling-wise, solo, absolutely fine, perfect. I think bunch anticipation, waiting for people to move, gaps opening up, maybe not as good. And I know he's banged up at this point, but one thing came out to me, or a couple of things. He was following de Klerk's wheel, not following the road on that descent, and just fo almost followed de Klerk off a ravine. Second was when he was passing the quickstep group initially on the road. When he was trying to pass them, he nearly crashed because he almost rode into a rider, and they, he didn't like anticipate that they were moving along the line in a certain way. And... The reason why I say maybe the crashing is not just bad luck is because a lot of his crashes are just him. So Vuelta 2019, not his fault. He got taken out. Not his fault. Gegenhart, that was just him, not Godu's fault at all. But Roglic, a lot of his crashes seem to be just him. The one with Tony Martin was just him and Tony Martin. The one today, the second one, 
was just him, although he's banged up. So I'm not definitively calling it, but it is something I would be thinking about. Whereas Pagacha, we saw, you know, we've seen previously in the wet and yada, yada, yada. Been riding a bike since he was three. Seems to not have these crash issues. Sagan famously never, never crashes. So, yeah, do you think I'm blowing that out of proportion, Benji? Or is it just something you're you're just going to monitor? No, I think I'm going to monitor it. I think that you're pretty... Um, yeah, you're obviously good when it comes to the facts of these because this all happened the way you say it does. And obviously that's one of the conclusions you can definitely take out of this. I think one of the other conclusions is that we're still at the standpoint where I believe that Yumbo is very bad at adapting to situations. And I think that's perhaps a bit of a DS issue at this point. Not necessarily that they're bad DSs, but that they sometimes don't quickly adapt to a situation that is going on. We saw it in the Giro stage uh, where he crashed in uh, the descent of that Chiviglio in 20, of, I don't know, 17, 2018. We saw uh, during, I think we saw during the last Vuelta, of course, the jacket issue. No, yeah, the reactions of the DS to that felt a bit like late. We obviously don't know what's happening inside the car, but from the outside perspective, this is what and I know. never noticed. get transparency afterwards. Exactly. And today, kind of exactly the same situation, because if you ride a crash in the last corner, you're going to know somehow he's likely going to say it on his on his microphone. Perhaps Rolovich didn't say it quickly enough because he was in all the chaos, getting on his bike, trying I mean, to get his, to the front dude, again. his shoulder might have been fucked and he couldn't yeah. press the thing. Yeah, the dislocation was in the first crash, not the second one, just to be sure. He, uh, his chain was off, though, in the I second know, crash. I know, his shoulder would still be sore. Yeah, you're right. So, um, yeah, the reaction from the DS to, like, do something, the fact that Rogic has to pay two minutes and a half ahead of a group alone before anybody from the first group goes back to him, it's just all so weird that it all goes so slow. And I think Ineos is so much better prepared on any crash and stuff and anything happening to their riders to oh, quickly yeah. react to it. Dude, and I think they train on it as well. UAE Tour. When that crash, when Adam Yates went down, go and I want someone to get a stopwatch out, go to my video, watch it. Luke Rowe throws his bid on. Straight up, he throws it out. And he's within two seconds on the radio. With the end, like, it's just instantaneous. He goes into that mode. And now whether, even if, Assuming, giving them the benefit of the doubt that team radios weren't working, whatever, they still don't get a pass. Because if you're Kreisweich or Bennett or Uman or whoever it was at the front group and Primoz isn't in your bubble, what, you know, what's going on? That should be alarm bells ringing and you should one of you at least should be dropping back ASAP. So... Whether that would have made a difference if Roglic got back into that first group, I think it would have. I think if they bridged him quickly into that first group, Benji, then Bora probably knock it off. And then Astana and Bora just attack each other in the last eight Ks, trying to get onto second on GC uh, or Tish Benoud, etc. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a real shame for Roglic. And I hope he comes back in Basque country. He'll come back strong. He showed again that he should be a Tour de France favourite. Joined up there with Pagacha. Um, doesn't really change my opinion in that respect too much. But yeah, any last thoughts on this Paranese stage, eight, Benji? Crazy stage. Crazy stuff. I think that coming out of this Paranese, Sharkman is likely happy about winning it. He's going to feel a bit meh about the situation that he won because Roglic crashed. But I think that Roglic is going to come out of this, first of all, with trying to lick his wounds, but also with the feeling that he absolutely destroyed everybody and is looking very good for the next upcoming races. So I think it's a win for Yambo despite not winning. The um, the moral winner here, I'm not saying moral as in, oh, he's a good person or a bad person. I think the moral winner from the perspective of, uh, I think that I'm the winner here because like I'm the performance-like winner is Roglic because he knows he destroyed everybody. And... He's going to go to the next couple of races with... Ludicrously stronger than everyone else. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Roglic probably pretty happy about how the Sparanese went, despite the outcome not being the optimal one. 
I don't think he'll care too much that he lost Paranese. It's only Paranese. I think that, yeah, other races are more important, definitely to him. And he's going to step up at the start of the Tour de France if there's anyone that can, as one of the two favorites. If there's anyone that can lick his wounds and come back and not you know, compartmentalize a bad result, it's Primoz Roglic. He proved that last year after the Tour de France, which was much more devastating than this Paranese uh, by far. So he's got maybe the strongest mental ability to just look past negative things that I've ever seen in an athlete. It's crazy his ability to do that. Even by the time he got to the finish, he seemed to have accepted it. And as Benji said at the top of the show, fist bumping Shuckman. So yeah, I can't wait to see him later in the season. There's still some question marks though about team composition, etc. Uh, for Jumbo Visma, but his legs look fantastic. Congrats to Max Schachmann. Really happy for him. Seems like a funny and nice guy. And he acknowledged Benji even before Sage 7 in an interview. He's like, yeah, I mean, we could try, but <laughs> what are we going to do yeah. <laughs> against Roglish today <laughs> anyway? So, I mean, we all know who was the strongest across this last week. This was our Paranese Stage 8 recap. Make sure you let us know in the comments on the YouTube video or on Twitter what you think about, um, yeah, Bora pacing the stage overall. Roglic, I'm sure a lot of you have some pretty some pretty hot takes about the whole thing. If you want to check out our show partner, Lacole, their link is in the description. Uh, if you want to check out the best performance cycling apparel out there. On to Torino Adriatico. Stage five. Well, what a day of cycling. <laughs> if on any other day, no spoilers if you're listening on YouTube, this would have been one of, well, still is one of the stage for the ages. 200 kilometer stage or 205 kilometers. The first half, pancake flat. And then the last 100 kilometers, they do a nasty Imola style circuit. One and a half Ks at 10.1% with ramps. Another climb in there was like 1K at 4.8% up to the finish line with like 12% ramps. And they do, I can't even count Benji, 12 or 13 reps of this. Absolutely disgusting from Castellalto to Castelfidardo. And it started bucketing down. They go past Porto Sant'Elpidio. That's where... Peter Sagan, Joaquim Rodriguez, and Nibali went crazy, dropping Froome and Cadell Evans and Contador and Terreno Adriatico's Stage 6 2013. You'll remember that. Well, it was an absolute banger again today, Benji. Where, what was it looking like when live coverage started, Benji? There wasn't really a selection, I don't think. Nope, no selection at all. We had a, a five-man group, I think, at the head of the reins, which included the likes of Ballerini, and Ghana in the breakaway. So those two riders are definitely strong riders to have in the breakaway. Some others in there as well. That breakaway was kind of destined to fail when it comes to this parkour. The only hope that people had was Filippo Ghana in that breakaway, setting up something crazy today. But the parkour, we probably both thought this is not happening. Definitely because in the peloton, we've got plenty of riders that can do something on this parkour. You had to pick Philippe. <laughs> Sorry, I had to rub that in. Um, Van der Poel was my pick. I think uh, Vanart was one of the favorites for doing well on this parkour as well. Pogacar was one of the riders, obviously, as the leader of the race to do well here. And depending on how the race would open up and how early the race would open up, we could see total destruction because the stage is made for that. I think looking at this parkour, it really started properly opening up. Not the first time they went into the circuit because we've got that steeper climb that you spoke about, Castel Fidado, that is making the most of a difference here. They go onto that climbing section the first time, and in the peloton, we see Fanat with his team. They were still there. They were still helping because, obviously, it's a first circuit. They haven't been destroyed yet. They were at the front. They were pacing to control. They weren't pacing hard or anything. So they kept controlling that tempo. They went there with that first circuit, and it started dripping rain. You said it. Buckets started falling. Not at the start. At the start, it was still sunny, and it was really into that, to the end of the first circuit somewhere that it started slowly but surely raining. And the roads became wetter and wetter. We had some crash in the peloton accordingly. I can't remember who crashed. I think Patrick Conrad at a certain point in the race. But luckily, a lot of people got spared from crashing in Tireno because it could have been much worse. 
knowing the circumstances. They go into the second circuit, which means that they move on to the Castelfidardo climb. That's the climb. And I was watching this race with my mom, and I said to my mom, I, I can feel it. Vanderpool's going to attack. And two seconds later on the left side of the road, <laughs> there was the legend himself. What a hot take, Ben. Nacho Vanderpool. I've never seen him attack <laughs> early before. <laughs> so uh, my mom was like, oh, you're a wizard. But it was pretty obvious that he was going to attack at some point in the race. And it was likely that it was going to happen on that climb. Eventually, he attacked. We had, like, generally, the first time we went over the Castle Fidardo, almost no splits. But that second time that Vanderpool attacked, the entire group was getting destroyed left and right. We saw that Alaphilippe was one of the riders that first came up with Vanderpool, and then suddenly he started moving back. And there's a few theories to this. First theory being that it looked like he had a mechanical or something was the first thing I noticed because he was looking behind all the time. The second thing is he was done. And the third thing is Almeida was not at the front of the race at that point. So either he went back and helped Almeida and then died, or he died completely and didn't help Almeida. We don't know the conclusion there. I don't have a clue. I don't think you know either because there was no coverage of that. We saw the front of the group. And this was with a good 60 kilometers to go that the race completely opened up because Vanderpool made that move. This first Castel Fidardo made the group split up in, I think, a group of 12, 13 first, and then it was the rest of the peloton. So, Alaphilippe, my theory on it, just to duck in on Benji, highlighted it, is that he doesn't like the wet and cold. We saw that in the that one-day French race. can't remember what its name was. That Simon Clark won at the start of last year. So that's my little theory on that. Um, anyway, maybe he just didn't want it. Maybe he was like, wow, this is so cold. Um, I'm just going to rest up for Milano San Remo, get some warm stuff on. Mathieu van der Poel, after the race, when asked, why did you attack with 60 kilometers to go? He said, because I was cold and uh, <laughs> wanted to warm up. So you can't argue with that logic. <laughs> Seriously, he said that. I'm not making that up. Anyway, great. They got into this group with Wout van Aert and Pagacha, etc. Almeida was dropped. Bernal was following. He then attacked, followed by Hegita. And they, the group had riders like Bardet, Wout van Aert, Formolo, Pogaccia, Serrano on Movistar, Aaron Baru, Benji's boy, Almeida, GVA was there for a while, Quintana, Yates, Bridgeback, Ciccone, Nibali, Demarchi, Rudy Mollard. Wellens Wet Weather Specialist, and Matteo Fabro. But then MVDP attacked again because you've got the GC battle, which is basically between Pagacha and Wout van Aert, and then MVDP is 20 minutes behind on GC. So he knew if I just attack again, Pagacha followed me the first time and then tried to roll over and actually looked a bit stronger than Wout van Aert. If I attack again, Pagacha and Wout van Aert are probably going to be like, well... Who cares? Let him do his thing, the crazy man, and then we can fight amongst ourselves later. So when you saw MVDP get that gap the second time, Benji, were you already like, this is a done deal? Yeah, it was weird because it was in a bit of a descent that he was eating something. <laughs> he was like eating in the descent and he, he started getting a gap on the group behind. I was like, is he eating? And he was eating and nobody behind was eating into the gap that he was making. So that's obviously not great. And Vanderpool slowly but surely moved up. And I said again to my mom, he's gone. We're never seeing him again. This is the stage is over. And she was like, why am I watching then? Because we know who wins the race. And I couldn't really talk to her about that logic. The um, intricacies of GC and so forth aren't really uh, up to her standards yet. I'm trying to teach, but it's it's going slow. And I think the situation there, it just kept on expanding. In that second group we had, a invaluable rider for Pogacar. In the last couple of days, no proper support for him. Micah working a tiny bit, Formula working a tiny bit, but for today, Formula was godlike for him. This is the perfect Formula parkour. The weather is perfect for Formula, and it paid off because he kept on pacing at the front of the group. Yes. Not as hard as Van der Poel. Van der Poel diving into every single corner like a madman, pacing like a crazy madman, the same way he did in that Bing Bang Tour stage last year in the exact same way, pacing like Matt the entire stage from that point. In the second group, we were anticipating stuff that Fanad would perhaps attack Pogacar, Pogacar would attack Fanad. Pogacar doesn't need to attack Fanad, he needs to play defensively. But he might want to attack if he wants to extend this gap. 
And I think it all depends on whether Van Aert or not would do an attack before the final circuit or on the final circuit and whether he was able to follow that or not. And I think there's not too much else to share really from that point onwards to I think the last 20 kilometers, right? Because despite this race being... Your point about, uh, not full saying, not Fabro, combination of two, Formolo, um, <laughs> we need to give him some credit because most, I think you and I, rightly, we shit on UAE in the, uh, well, maybe we didn't shit on them, but we're like, oh, the train wasn't great on Pratichitivo. Um, you mentioned it, Benji. Formula is not a high mountain guy. He is good in a medium mountain breakaway on his day, but these sort of stages is where he's good, Liège style course, etc. He's absolutely banging. So that's where he's really good. But that's the problem that they're kind of using them, him as their like second to last man in the mountain train. So yeah. anyway, that's a problem for a later date. The group was going slow. It really swelled with all those riders and none of the GC contenders attacking. Everyone let the group go out to, well, Formula was pacing the group together, gap out to M- MVDP nearly three minutes. Fellini attacked Benji with like 30Ks to go yes. or 25Ks to go, joined by Serrano and DeMarchi. Wellens, how many times did Wellens attack? I know you were keeping account of it. Uh, well, Soler that was moving up the last time. Serrano was in the group a lot. He Soler, worked a lot. Sorry. He attacked a few times, but Soler was the last the one disrespect. to attack. Yeah, the disrespect, man. Come on. Uh, Wellens, oh, when there's <laughs> rain, he attacks 20,000 times. I think that I tweeted throughout the stage, <laughs> what are we going to see more of the DNFs during the stage? or the amount of times that your boy Wellens attacks here in the rain. And I think he attacked at least 10 or 20 times, which which is fun to see. I love when a rider shows himself, even if he's in a situation where Van der Poel was moving up so much with his gap. A minute, a minute 20, a minute 40, two minutes, two minutes 20, two minutes 30. And that was roughly where Fellini started that attack. Fellini stayed with the group of Soler and the Marquis on that two minutes 30. The peloton group fell back a bit to three minutes. And that's where the race started changing around, didn't it? Because the way that they went into the final circuit. Yeah, they went into the final circuit. And the first climb once again in the circuit is Castelfidardo, the steep climb. Everybody's expecting Fanat to attack Pogacar. And we see Vanderpool. Slowly but surely losing a tiny bit of his gap. I wasn't really concerned at all in the last 15 kilometers. I think it was the last 15 kilometers really that he still had two minutes and a half on yeah, that second 17 group. 17Ks to go. Two minutes and a half. Off. Yeah, that's a crazy gap on the group. And we see that Vanard is moving up on that Castelfirardo. Actually, we didn't see it. I'm expecting that that's how it happened because Vanard was suddenly first on the, on the view. We saw that he was first in the group and people were dropping off the back. And Pogacar, who was sitting in second or third wheel, makes a move. He attacks on the right of Fanat, drops him off his wheel directly. Fanat has nothing to respond. He keeps his own tempo, didn't even try to close down the gap to Pogacar. He obviously was trying to survive at that point because he looked like he was suffering like a madman. Pogacar wasn't. Pogacar was ready to try and hunt down Van der Poel if it was remotely possible. Likely he didn't think so. Likely he was like, I'm going to gain a bit of time on, on Vanard here for GC. That's perfect. I've got a bit of a gap now. now. He's attacking for GC. Yeah, exactly. And he went to that, I think, the group of Feline. And that group was starting to splinter. I think Feline was the last rider of the group that was left when Pogacar went to that group. Was it Soler? Feline and Soler were there. Yeah. And then Pogacar is like, you're going too slowly. Drop them on the next rise. And I was saying this in Messenger. I was like, people were saying, Juan Fanart, we, we said, sorry, we said on the preview yesterday, Juan Fanart needs to team up with Van der Poel to attack Pagacha. But then when I saw the, the really wet weather, this is Pagacha's terrain. He is elite in the wet weather. Um, he's just so good in it. I think heat is what kind of brings him back down to earth a little bit Adam Yates stronger than him on her feet on stage three UAE tour, but really cold weather, terrible conditions, up and down climbs, Pagacha, almost the best in the world. And his ability to 
I think this is somehow tied into his recovery between stages in the third week of a Grand Tour, Benji. His ability, because the cold affects calories and how many calories you're burning. We saw that with MVP in Yorkshire in 2019. Pagacha just seems to be able to get those calories in, even in the cold, and it's, he's got enough food, and he just keeps going strong. And he just kept motoring. And that's when the second part of this stage got even more exciting, where we were like, no fucking way is Pagacha going to chase down MVDP. When did you start to believe it was it actually could happen, Benji? When it went under two minutes with like eight Ks to go? I think uh, I started having the idea that it could all come together with a good one minute and a half left on the clock. I think that was with seven, six and a half kilometers to go. And we know that Vanderpool usually rides at a pretty high pace. <laughs> Obviously, if he's doing a 50k solo, he's going to try and ride the hardest he can. But he started looking the same way that he did in Yorkshire 2019, the one you've been referring to, the one where he attacked in the Dutch, in the Dutch jersey and started having, yeah, he was boinking on, on the climb and he basically looked like he was suffering so much and that he couldn't put Watts into the pedals anymore. And We've seen this before in Yorkshire 2019. I was getting worried when I saw that. When I saw that first time, I was like, oh shit, this time is going to go down so, so quickly. Pogaccia, who was like, he was still dancing on the pedals sometimes. He wasn't looking amazing either, but he still had something left. You noticed that. For not in front position, basically in the race, he dropped the marquee, who was his helper for a tiny bit, off his wheel. He passed Feline into third position. The gap there... I think he was a good 30 seconds behind Pogacar at that point. And Pogacar slowly but surely kept moving that gap down. I think we went into the last four and a half kilometers and it was going towards one minute 10. And then he came to the real twist for me where I was There's like... There's one big climb left. Yeah, that one climb left is not really the biggest climb today. It's just a very... Yeah, it's, it's the same gradient upwards. It's not the steepest gradient, but towards the line. It's not the steepest climb at all of the day. But it's going to hurt. It's basically not a false flat, but just above that. And Pogacar keeps moving up, keeps moving up, and the gap comes down. One minute with a good three minutes and there are three kilometers left, or something like that. One minute left. I was like... On paper, this is impossible. One minute in three kilometers, usually someone gets that. But we know that Vanderpool was suffering so, so much. So in my mind, I was like, oh my God, this could actually come together. And I started getting really worried when at one and a half kilometers, he started seeing Vanderpool riding ahead of him a few hundred meters. And that's where I was like, oh boy, this is going to be madness on the line. Imagine if this all comes together and we get a sprint between these two. On the last section, dying swans crossing the line. Imagine if Pogacar would win a sprint against Vanderpool at the end of the stage. Yeah, exactly. He looked like he was literally dying on his bike, which we hope no one does. And he kept riding Vanderpool. And in the last kilometer, it looked like he got a bit extra. And he started going on his pedals again and then was sitting down again. And... I think that was an extra where I was like, okay, <laughs> he's going to make it. Because, yeah, that last little pinch. And I think that was the last pinch he needed to bring this one home. But we got a, a front view from the from the fixed camera view at a good 400 meters to go, 300 meters to go, where Vanderpool was there. He crossed the corner. 10 seconds later, Pogacar crossed the corner. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Imagine yeah. if this is Roglic versus Gino Mater once again. Imagine if Pogacar crosses the line ahead of Matthew Vanderpool and the entire internet goes mad at Pogacar because he didn't let the Vanderpool win here. That would have been the perfect follow-up of yesterday. But towards the end, it looked like Pogacar yeah, was suffering as well. Can't even get a World Tour contract. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, uh, I think that in the last section, everybody was hoping that Vanderpool would take it, or people that support Pogachar were probably also like, "Oh, Pogachar could perhaps come back." And in the last couple of meters, it became clear that the rider who was riding at the front for fifty kilometers alone was going to take home the stage—a heroic stage with weather that made it so legendary, one of the best stages I've ever seen on TV. 
next to the yeah, likes yeah. of a Montalcino 2010 Giro stage by Evans, uh, 2014 Tour de France cobble stage by, by Nibali, a Paris Roubaix Heyman victory with Bonin coming second in 2016. Those types of stages, this is where that fits. It's one of the best stages I've ever seen, hands down. Iconic stage, had everything, had the early attack from MVDP, it had the GC tension between Pagacha and Wout van Aert. It had Pagacha showing them his cojones, attacking <laughs> right in the face of Wout van Aert, going for extra time on GC. On the stage, we said, suited Wout van Aert to try and put time back into Pagacha before tomorrow's, or before the ITT. Pagacha even had a mechanical, didn't care. He like lost his chain yeah. shifting into that last climb over that gutter that through that corner bench you mentioned. And we had MVDP bonking once again. And he said afterwards he couldn't do 200 watts. He couldn't couldn't hold 200 watts on any of the climbs. And that's why the gap, like you, you probably heard, oh, what, a minute with 4Ks to go on undulating terrain? It's not an HC climb. How can you not hold a minute? Well, he couldn't pedal. <laughs> and apparently Pogacha was doing like averaging like 380 in the last 25 minutes or something. So crazy. Um Crazy, crazy stage. Pagacha in the cold and wet. Mark it down. Nasty in those conditions. And MVDP, it's legendary. But if Pagacha had someone helping him or <laughs> had gone a little bit earlier or the finish was 500 metres later, he wouldn't have won this stage. Seems like, and that's why we love him. Yorkshire 2019, disaster. Today, he's like, fuck it, I'll do it again because I'm cold. Matthew, if you're cold... Put on some gloves and a jacket. <laughs> Why are you wearing summer gear? Attacking is not your only option. Other riders just put a jacket on or some gloves. It's like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe Alperson finished. Who's their kit manufacturer? Maybe they don't produce them. He only has the summer Netherlands kit and the skin suit. Man, but that's why it is. He made for a fantastic stage. Um, but yeah, any last thoughts? I'll do the results before I throw to you, Benji. Van der Poel first, Pagacha second, 10-second gap in the end. Wout van Aert third, still great from him, 39 seconds back on Pagacha. He clawed it back, and he held it to Pagacha too. Um, it was actually more than 40 seconds, 45 seconds at one point, that gap. Fellini fourth, Bernal fifth, Formolo sixth, Wellen seventh, Demarchi eighth, Lander ninth with Fabro tenth, two minutes 25 back. Iconic stage, like that Terreno stage six. GC not actually changed that much. Just Pagacha extending his lead on Walfonard out to a minute 15. Landa into third, three minutes back. Quintana lost seven places on GC. Higita. Thomas Fulsang and Carr lost 14. Where's Higita, Benji? I was scrolling down PCS. I can't Completely find him. Completely destroyed at a certain point. He was in the initial break Holy that fuck. was a five-man group with the likes of a of a Van der Poel, Higita, we had Van Aert there. He was closing Bernal. Yeah, he was closing Bernal indeed. And then suddenly he started moving backwards on the moment where Bernal had those DSM jacket issues that he couldn't get his jacket on. At that moment, Higita was just like, <laughs> he was standing still. He was riding backwards of that climb. Oh my God. And where did he end? He's now 37th on GC, 21 minutes back. Oh, my God. So he finished like... 21 minutes you, back. I'm telling, that's why I'm telling you. When people say shorter stages are more exciting, they're lying to you. You're saying, why did they have the extra 100Ks of flat at the start? Well, it's because when riders get put into difficulty in the cold and wet, it becomes, it like extends those gaps. People crack properly. People that are fueling properly, like the difference between them and others gets exa exaggerated compared to a small stage. That being said, small stages can be exciting as well as we saw in Paranese. But yeah, crazy for Pagacha. Sorry, I didn't finish the top 10 GC. Bernal now fourth, 330, moving up from 11th to fourth. Fabro Benji, fifth, 354. in sixth. Almeida down to 7th, 4.42, just a bit behind Wellens. Bardet, Nibali, and Yates all back between 4 and 7 minutes back. So what, is, what about Matteo Fabro Benji? I think he's 
he's underrated, but not for very long. I think he's very, very strong. Yeah, I think that Tirreno is also kind of the race where he showed himself the first time last year. He was uh, third in that stage. Van Der Poel won the final stage. Also showed himself as a decent climber on these hilly peaks. And it was a very similar race, that one, because it also had a circuit with like three hills in it. Last year, I think stage seven to Loreta. Van Der Poel won that on the final climb, passing... Was it Fabro on the last climb or was it someone else? I do not remember. I think it was. The only thing I know is that Fabro is a really strong rider in these types of stages. And I feel like the Giro added those stages last year. I hope they keep on doing it because I don't think we've seen stages in this format in the Tour de France since the likes of 2012 or something. So I like those in Grand Tours. I like these heroic stages or stages that could go heroic if these circumstances arise. And today the circumstances arise surely because we had one hell of a race and those are kind of my final thoughts. I want to celebrate the moment because last year we followed this, well, we followed cycling more than probably usual with the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. I think we all watched every single race anyway, we too, but I think we watch it even more now and we're closer to it. And I think that this preseason has been one of the best preseasons ever just because of that, because we're in the moment, we're in these moments and we're trying to share that with you as much as possible here, how we in- interpret everything, how we feel. And we also enjoy so much that you all give feedback on how you're enjoying the races. What What's your takeaways on the stage? So definitely keep doing that on Twitter, comment sections, stuff like that. Even in the five-star reviews you give us and we'll keep giving us. Thank you very much for that. It feels very special to be knowing even with 20 kilometers left in the stage that you're watching cycling history, you're watching one of the stages that the reason I started my channel started posting properly in June, 2019, I started that channel to go back mainly and reanalyze and relook at historic iconic cycling stages and to be able to watch them and cover them in real time. And it's just, it's crazy. And I get, um, I'm a pretty, uh, I get underwhelmed by most things in life, but even then, even these things, I'm like, I get a little bit emotional sometimes. Tomorrow's stage from Castel Raimondo to Lido di, di Fermo, 169k stage. I'm going to say it again, Benji. Wout van Aert wants to gain time. Tomorrow's stage looks pretty good for him. <laughs> Seriously, like it's a it's a light version of the stage they had today. A circuit again. They do. Climbs that are like 3Ks at 5.2%, the Monte San Giusto. Final, the final's flat, uh, but there's a few rollers before then. I'm trying to look where the intermediate sprint is, Benji. There's an intermediate sprint about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through on the flat before uh, the, I don't know what climb that's called, the Fermo climb, maybe. It's not that big a climb. Well, Van Aert's got to try something if he's got anything in the legs t- tomorrow, Benji, a long ranger. What about Matthew van der Poel? He says he's never gone that deep ever. Does that mean he's winning tomorrow? Uh, I don't think so. I think that it's going to be a, a reduced group that is going to be sprinting for it. And I think that we can't expect too much from Van Aert tomorrow. Uh, the reason that I don't expect too much from Van Aert tomorrow, as in I don't expect action mid-stage from him. If it comes down to a sprint, he's my favorite for it. But (laughs) just to be clear about that. But I don't think he's going to open early. He said in an interview past the race that he's pretty much settled it on the second spot in this Tireno. That he just wants to win the stage extra from this point onwards. So he's got two more stages to do that. That's tomorrow with the hilly terrain and then a flat sprint. That would fit him a lot. And we also have the time trial in which Ghana is participating, so he's going to lose that. So he's going to have to do it tomorrow if he wants to win that stage. I don't think he's going to go early. I think Van der Poel's going to be like, fuck that, I'm not doing that again yeah. tomorrow. So he's not going to do a 50k attack. <laughs> if he does, he's fucking crazy. Um, but hey, he keeps on being crazy. Last time, Stradiante, what were my words? What were my words at Stradi? I said that every single time that Van der Poel is winning something, he does it in a spectacular way. And he proved that once again today. <laughs> like, there's no way this man can get a just a boring victory. Like, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do boring. And that's why he's one of uh, the most entertaining bike riders that is in the peloton right now. 
But yeah, I think a minute 12 is a bridge too far for Wildfire Art with Pagacha. Pagacha looked fresh over the finish line, which is kind of terrifying. What about before we get out of here, Benji, Milano San Remo? Cold, wet conditions, 200k stage, MVDP emptying ent- ent- the tank. Are you concerned? Does this change your view on Milano San Remo? The three favorites, Alaphilippe, Wildfire and MVDP. Pogaccia, question mark. Last year I had Vanderpool. Do you think this changes anything? Last year I had Vanderpool as my favorite for uh, for Milano San Remo. He didn't end up being in the form that I expected him to be in, in the classics, the Italian classics at the start of that uh, restart season after COVID. This year he's been absolutely phenomenal. I think he's winning Milano San Remo. And um, I just, the only different, the only thing that is kind of stopping me from saying that completely is because. I have not followed at all whether that finish is going to be taking the normal route, whether they're going to add those 10 kilometers they were talking about at a certain point. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if they actually finish on the spot that they usually do. And um, therefore, I don't know if it's perhaps a a reduced sprint, if it's like 10 kilometers later. But I think that we've got amazing, amazing riders that are going to make that amazing race. And I think Vanderpool is my favorite for it personally. And I think... On the community tab of the YouTube channel, we did the same. I said it in the previous pod yesterday, I think, that we had a community post on it, a poll on which you could vote, and Vanderpool won that with 60%. So looks like the LRCP army is slightly skewed towards Vanderpool on that as well. That's been our recap of Torino Adriatico Stage 6. Thanks very much to LaCole, our show partner for the entire year, making this possible supporting the podcast you can go and support them through the link below as well as our ko-fi link if you're so inclined but more importantly you can also give this a like on youtube or if you're listening on podcast players give it a review on whatever podcast platform allows you to do that what a day of racing i'm exhausted i gotta go lie down we'll see you at Torino adriatico stage seven six tomorrow ciao Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.